Welcome back, brothers and sisters. And we have been dealing with a lot of very gritty uh, topics in, these, in this series. We've been dealing with information that might be quite hard to uh, hear and process. And some of you may uh, find it difficult to even um, hear teaching on these topics. And I understand that. The reason why we're doing this is because uh, the, these ideas that I'm sharing with you are so very much a part of the uh, behind how a, a Muslim uh, views the whole area of man and woman in Islam. Even if the Muslim is unaware of much of what I'm teaching, uh, it still is in their psyche. There still is that foundation that has come from their religion, come from their Quran, come from their traditions that allows for them to, to sometimes allow for abuse towards the vulnerable in their society, which tend to be the women and children. And if we are to be Christians who really understand the heartbeat of Islam, we have to deal with these gritty topics. We have to look at history. We have to look at what Muslims think is true history and then we ask historical critical questions of their history, but we must look into their stories and into what they think happened and the things that they, they take seriously and are important to them so that we can be better equipped and better informed to know how to respond to our Muslims as they come up with all their different claims, some of which cannot be found at all in their stories and some of which can be found in their stories. But we just need to be much more educated and in fact have more knowledge than them so that we can can uh, confidently and in an educated way take the gospel to our Muslim friends and also uh, challenge Islam. Now, just an aside, two verses to remember. We as Christians always remember the verse of uh, in Peter where it tells us that we must be ready even in the context of fear and threat. 1 Peter 3, 14 and 15. In the context of fear and threat, we must be ready to defend the faith. But folks, the Bible has another verse that many Christians ignore. And that is 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5. It is that verse that I am applying in this series when I look at Islam. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5, where it says, it first of all talks about that our battle is not against, is, is also against the principalities of the heavens, the, the works of the forces of darkness. But then it says this verse, and everyone focuses on the, the early one, but not on this one. For we demolish strongholds and every argument that says, itself up against the knowledge of God. We demolish strongholds and every argument that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5. So that's what I'm doing when I'm looking at their text, when I'm looking at their stories, when I'm looking at their Quran, that's what I'm doing. I'm applying that verse um, uh, to, to everything I look at when I look at Islam. So in the, in the previous uh, class, we were looking at muta and misia marriage, temporary marriage. I'm just going to carry on that theme a little bit. Um, muta and misia marriage, uh, uh, just to, to clarify again, muta is uh, the, the type of uh, contractual and short marriage that, uh, or temporary marriage that is practiced through uh, the Shia world. Misia marriage is practiced through the Sunni world. And they both happen today. And there's women in both types of marriage. They're, they're, they are attached to the mosque. A Muslim man, when he travels, can go to a mosque and he can uh, marry a woman for a few hours. Let me tell you a story. I have a colleague back in London. He is, um, he is an academic and he does a lot of great writing in Islam. And in fact, he did, um, he's doing some fantastic writing right now on the Nabataean, um, Jordanian origins of Islam. But he traveled to a Muslim country. I'm not going to uh, say which one it was. He traveled to a Muslim country. And whilst he was there, he traveled with, uh, with an imam because he had been invited by the president of that country to come in and to meet with them on certain political issues. 
So he was meeting with, with, with this Muslim president, but he was traveling with these, with these imams and with these Muslim clerics. When they arrived at the hotel in this particular Muslim country, um, suddenly his friend who he'd been traveling with starts getting ready to go out. And my colleague said, uh, why are you going out? Why, uh, we've just arrived, we're tired, don't you want to sleep? And he said, oh, I'm away from my wife for, for one week and I'm going to go to the mosque and do a muta marriage, do a, uh, or, or in Sunni Islam, a misya marriage do a temporary marriage. He didn't use the term muta or misya, he used temporary marriage. So he, um, he went, uh, and, and so my, my colleague um, said, said to him, you're away from your wife for one week, and you have to go do a temporary marriage? And this is one of the clerics of Islam has been invited by the president of this country. And he came back just aghast at this man who had gone to this Muslim country who couldn't control himself for one week. And he went, he knew there were women attached to the mosque. And his friend said to them, there's always women attached to the mosque where we can go and we can marry these women. And my friend turned to him and said, that's prostitution. You're, you're going to be sleeping with a prostitute. He said, no, 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 in Islam, it's legitimate. As long as I marry her, it's legitimate. It's a marriage. Of course, he divorces her by the end of the night. But in Islam, it's accommodated. Do you see how it's allowing sin once again to permeate and be allowed in the normal practices of, of the male population of Islam? Now, some Muslims may say, oh, we don't really do that. However, it's quite interesting. When I've raised this with Muslim missionaries, with Shia and Sunni, I'll say, to, and they'll say, Betty, why do you reject Islam? I say, well, there's a lot of reasons, but one of the main reasons is Muhammad, how he lived, and your theology on woman. I said, I've studied the theology of woman, and I've studied the theology of marriage, and I'm really disturbed by your view of misya and muta marriage. Now, most Muslims don't know what misya is, um, but they will probably know what muta is, um, temporary marriage. That's the traditional term for temporary marriage. And I've heard so many Muslim men say, oh, well, I don't practice that. And I said, well, jolly good you don't practice that, but that doesn't make it any better. Your religion says you can. So sometimes Muslims are more moral than their own religion. They're more moral than their own God. They're more moral than their own prophet. And point that out to them. And I've done that with Muslim missionaries. I said, that's good that you don't do muta marriage. But your Allah says you could, especially at the time of Muhammad. And they say, oh, no, no, he doesn't allow you to do any more. I said, even if Allah doesn't allow you to do it anymore, he did back then. So what does that say about Allah? So you think it's not a good thing. Are you more moral than Allah? Help Muslims to think it through. So they see the problem with their God and with the practices of Muhammad and their religion. So I w I'm going to um, jump around a little bit here again. Uh, we talked a little bit more about slavery, and we're going to do that again in, a, in, another, in another talk later on. But today, I just want to look at a, little, a few more uh, examples of ill treatment of women. Now, maybe I'm belaboring the point. I'm doing this on purpose. I really want all of us to understand what this religion does to women and what it does to men. So there's a text, there's a very interesting text. It's taken from Sahih Bukhari, Volume 3. And in Sahih Bukhari, Volume 3, Ibn Abbas um, gives a, he's one of the companions of Muhammad, and he gives a, uh, a recitation or a hadith or saying of Muhammad. And it's very interesting. Um, this, is, this is what he's, he's talking about. He's talking about how they were moving among, uh, the Muslims were moving into non-Muslim areas, and their Muslim women were beginning to mix with the non-Muslim women. It's very interesting to see how the Muslim and men begin to complain. And this is what um, this particular uh, person said, narrated by Ibn Abbas. We, the people of the Quraysh, used to have authority over our women. 
But when we came to live with the Ansar, so these are other women outside of, of, the, of the people of, of, of Islam, we noticed that the Ansari women had the upper hand over their men. So our women started acquiring the habits of the Ansari women. So there's a story here where the Muslim women um, are moving with their men into uh, tribes, they're meeting other people, and the, those Muslim women begin to see that the other women have a lot more freedoms, and they begin to, to live like the other women, and they begin to talk back to the husbands, which the Muslim men get quite upset. They go to Muhammad, they complain about it, and there's a whole scenario of how they complain to Muhammad about their women are getting the upper hand. And of course, they always get help to control their women, to keep them in line, and all always revelations to help um, to, to make the women obey. But read between the lines, read between the lines, because here you have these Muslim women who are, who are, um, are, are if you read between the lines, who are subjugated, can't ever talk back to the husband, mix in with other women, suddenly they take on the way they're dealing with their husbands, they begin to talk back. Now, I'm not saying that women should be talking back to their husbands. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that they just had a lot more freedom. Read between the lines. The other women had more say, more power, more freedom. So help Muslim friends to understand that. Just a couple more stories of, of, of real tru uh, tru uh, troubling stories under Islam. Uh, one of the, if you want to read the biography of Muhammad, um, read the, if you want to read it in English, read the one by Alfred Guillaume. It's, of course, always best to try to read it in the Arabic, but most of us don't read Arabic. So Alfred Guillaume and the life of Muhammad um, is one of the best translations of the English version of the biography. And he says this, he says this in, um, on a number of different pages, but here's one story. It's talking about a girl. The Muslims have moved into the tribes. They are killing the men. They are taking the women as concubines and slaves and so on. But this is one particular woman that was killed. She was talking with me, and this is Aisha speaking. So this is one of the hadith where Aisha is reporting the hadith. So when Muslims say that Aisha reported many hadith, many sayings of Muhammad, well, you could refer back to a hadith like this because it's quite a troubling hadith. Say, well, just because Aisha said these sayings of Muhammad doesn't mean it's good for women. So this woman, she was talking with her and um, she was laughing uh, almost hysterically as the apostle was killing her men, the men of the Christ tribe, in the marketplace when suddenly a voice called her. And the woman says, I am to be killed. I am to be killed. And the woman, it seems like she's panicking. Um, and she says, I am to be killed because of something I did. She probably went against Muhammad and his men and she was to be killed. And then she was beheaded. Now, it's very important that we know these stories because every Muslim apologist I talk to says that Muhammad doesn't kill women and children. So we need to show them, oh, yes, he did. He did kill women and children. Now, some Muslims today, including um, modern-day radical groups that follow the life of Muhammad, like ISIS, al-Shabaab, and so on, Boko Haram in Africa, um, when they will say that uh, when women take up arms to fight um, or cause mischief in the land, then they can be killed. So in, that, in the context of war, women could be killed because they're not an innocent woman. That's the way they get around that. Still, most say Muhammad didn't kill women and children. 
Here's another story, a, a very sad story. This is from Sahih Bukhari, book 19. Um Kifra was a very old woman, and her daughter was taken as a captive in war. And Zayed ordered um, Caius to kill Um Kifra. They killed her by a very cruel way. They tied a, a rope on her legs, and then they, they cut her in half by um, driving two camels. So they, they tied her legs with two ropes, tied them to two camels, and rent her apart. Cruel, absolutely cruel. Muhammad and his men and the people of the time absolutely killed women. Now, I tell you that because I think it's very important to, to see what this man did according to their tradition. Maybe not according to history. Muhammad may not have anything to do with Islam if we look at what the latest historical findings are, sh- are sharing with us. But, but when you look at their story, this is their story. Their story shows a very, very cruel religion, a very, very cruel treatment of women and men. They killed men, they raped women, and they took them into slavery. Uh, or or they, they, um, they, they, they um, took the woman even though they were married. All these heinous crimes they were doing against humanity. Was it rele- is it relevant for today? No. Was it relevant for that time? No. Because look what Jesus did 700 years earlier. Go back to Jesus. Take your Muslim friend back to Jesus because he rose above his culture. Most Muslim apologists say to me, Betty, Muhammad was a product of his culture. And I say, oh, he sure was. In fact, he probably did more than his culture. He even made it worse than his culture. But the way they get around some of these troubling stories is Muhammad was a product of his culture. And I say, yes, he was. But you know, Jesus rose above his culture. Jesus came into a very Middle Eastern, very suppressive regime, and he rose above it. But then he's God. He could do that. Muhammad is a mere man. He fell for everything his culture, his carnal and sinful nature desired. And God, his God, allowed him to feed those desires. What about some of the disturbing quotes of Muhammad? We need to look at some of the disturbing quotes of Muhammad. Uh, And again, uh, some Muslims throw these out and say that these aren't authoritative. Others say they're very authoritative. You may have heard of some of these disturbing quotes. I think we need to look at them a little bit. In Sahih Bukhari, volume 7, uh, book 30, it talks about Muhammad is talking about how there is an evil omen in a horse, in a house, and in a woman. And I, I, I like to use this little saying with Muslims. Um, there's different variations of these sayings, by the way, in different um, hadith. So Sahih Muslim, Sahih Bukhari, uh, Abu Dawood might have cite different variations. Sometimes they will show a different scenario of how these sayings are being said. Or it might be that it wasn't Muhammad that said it, someone else did. There's a lot of contradictions within the biographies, within the hadith, within the sirah of Muhammad. And so there's different versions sometimes of these sayings. But this is a well-known one, that in the, uh, there's an evil omen in the horse, in the house, and the woman. And many believe it. Surah uh, Sahih Bukhari, volume 7, uh, book 33 Muhammad is quoted to have said, the worst affliction I have left on men is woman. (laughs) So women are the worst affliction he has left on men. Uh, Some of these become so, so, uh, so awful that sometimes they make me smile because the saints are so awful. We talked earlier in another session in Abu Dawood, um, book 11, where Muhammad said, if I were to command anyone to bow down, I would command women to bow down to men because Allah has made one of them to have a right over the other or men to have a right over woman. Uh, you, you may have heard of the story where um, 
uh, Muhammad uh, uh, is very well known, uh, and the sayings of Muhammad where it says women are less deficient in their intelligence. Uh, remember we said at the, uh, in the, one of the first sessions where we talked about how when a woman goes into a, a, a court of law, uh, there's two women versus one man. And you need the two women because one might err or make a mistake and has to remind the other. So a woman's testimony, is, it, two women are equivalent to one man's testimony. Muhammad has a different reason, um, apart from the Quran, of why a woman, two women are in, in a place of, 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 in a court of law. And um, so the, the women come along and say, oh, Muhammad, um, why is it uh, talking about women having to testify, two women having to testify? And he says the reason for it is because they are deficient in their intelligence. That's the reason Muhammad gives of why a woman, two women have to testify in a court of law to make up the testimony for one man. Then um, women complain because they realize the majority of people in hellfire are women. And again, um, Muhammad uh, responds, and the reason for it is because they have menstruation, so they can't always pray. They can't actually always do their religious practice. Modern, modernist Muslims will say that's because Allah is kind and gracious to the Muslim woman. So he knows at times of the month that she can't go and she can't pray. She's not having the energy and so on. So Allah is kind. There's nothing in the text that implies that. That's a modern day apologetic. In the text, Muhammad says it, she is deficient in her religion. That's the reason why she can't pray when she, um, when she has her menstruation. So her normal bodily function is used against her in her religious practice. Just unpack this with Muslims. Let's uh, look at the afterlife. I think we need to look a little bit about women in, in the afterlife, women in hell and so on, men in the afterlife, men in hell. I just want to look at a few, a, a few stories. So Surah 6, 114, it says, Am I to desire someone other than Allah as a judge when it is he who has sent down the book to you to clarify everything? So it puts Allah as the judge at the end times, replacing Jesus Christ. That's what the whole of Islam does. Islam takes Jesus Christ out of the picture and replaces it with Allah or Muhammad. And then it takes um, the way God views man and woman in the Bible and it takes that out and replaces it with the Islamic view of man and woman, which is very, very different. So in Sahih Bukhari, volume two, uh, it talks about how the most of the majority of habit inhabitants of hell are women. Sahih Muslim, book 36, says this. I saw the hellfire and I'd never seen such a horrible sight. I saw that most of the inhabitants were women. And the people asked, oh, Allah's apostle, why is it so? The prophet replied, because of their ungratefulness. It was, it, was, it was asked whether they were ungrateful to Allah. The Prophet said, there are, they are ungrateful to their companions, their husbands. They are ungrateful to good deeds. Hang on a minute. This, this little saying is saying that women are in hellfire, because, not because they're ungrateful to Allah, but they're ungrateful to their life companions, to, to Muhammad or to their husbands. That means a woman's future destiny in heaven or hell depends on whether she, how she responds to her husband. It's got nothing to do with God. It's got nothing to do with purity or holiness. And it hasn't even here got anything to do with good works, which is the Islamic concept, the way you would try to um, earn your salvation through good works. It's all to do with how she responds to her husband. Sahih Bukhari, volume 7, book 62, says this. Then I saw the hellfire, and I've never seen such a horrible sight as that. And I saw the majority of its dwellers were women. The people asked, oh, Allah's apostle, what is the reason for that? 
And he said, because they are ungrate, they, because of their ungratefulness. It was said, do they disbelieve in Allah? I.e., are they ungrateful to Allah? He replied, this is Muhammad, they are not thankful to their husbands. Again, just troubling verses, troubling things. Um, uh, what Muhammad said about women and the threats done, um, said to women to threaten them to obey the husbands. It seems he's using God once again. He's using even the afterlife and the fear of what could happen in the afterlife. He's using that to make the women come under uh, submission to their husbands. So he says they are not grateful, thankful to their husbands and are, are ungrateful for the favors done to them. Even if you do good to them all of your life, when she sees some harshness from you, she will say, I never saw any good from you. I can imagine Muhammad's just come out of maybe an argument with one of his wives. He seems a little bit disgruntled. It's possibly a bit of a threat. He's possibly a little bit annoyed right now. But what happens is, according to Islamic tradition, if you're reading between the lines, it probably looks like that he was upset with one of his wives. And this has been written down as holy writ. This is just a very annoyed man. And they are judged because they're ungrateful to their husband. That's why a woman is sent to hell. And, they, and, they, and it's another way to keep the women in line, to keep them obeying their husbands. But for him to say, if you do good to them all your life, when she sees some harshness in you, as if that's okay, she will say, I never saw any good, I never saw any good from you. Now, if a Muslim believes in this verse, I will then take them to 1 Peter where it says very clearly that if a man is harsh with his wife, his prayers are hindered. And I just do the comparison between the two. So I want to unpack a little bit about this Islamic heaven. It is a garden of carnal delights, Surah 56, 12. In fact, let me just re-say what I just said. I'm not going to call it Islamic heaven. I'm going to call it Islamic paradise. We have heaven. We have this incredible place we're going to God. They have just a mere paradise, and I'm going to say that because that's the term they use. I don't want it to be confused with the biblical heaven. It is so different. So I sometimes do that on purpose. You don't have to. It's just something I do that's very helpful when I talk with Muslims. I always talk about Islamic paradise, Christian heaven, Islamic paradise, biblical heaven, just to make a bit of a, quite a clear comparison. In fact, the more you point out your differences when you, when you talk with Muslims, the easier evangelism becomes. The more they see how vastly different our two uh, views of God and life and human beings, sin, salvation is, how vastly different the two religions are, the easier it becomes to evangelize Muslims because then you have something to offer. You have something that's such a different idea to replace this these ideas that we've been all talking about in the last few sessions. So back to the Islamic paradise. It is a garden of carnal delights, Surah 56. It has chaste females. Now people say virgins, just to to be careful with this. Virgins are given these details of these virgins and the the fact that actually called virgins comes um, out of the hadith and the sayings of Muhammad and so on. And so it's not necessary in the Quran, although it's implied. And um, they're called the Hur or the Huri, and there's a few other words that they use. And we see in Surah 55, um, 56 that there will be many virgins. And then you go again outside of the Quran, because the Quran never gives all the deep theology that you need to, to know how to live or to understand the theology of God or the theology of man, sin, human being, salvation, and so on. You have to go outside. So you go to the Hadith, you go to, um, to the Tafsir and so on, the exegetes, to know the details. So the Quran says that there are, are, are hurs, and they're, they're described as chaste females 
or females anyway. And then the hadith and other literature says there's 72 or gives different numbers to different, um, in different writings. But apparently there's about 72, uh, depending on which writing you read. Um, vir- virgins for men, it describes these virgins. Um, uh, and it's, it's, again, it's, it's almost a fantasy. You have immortal pretty boys waiting on the inhabitants of heaven, Surah 56, verse 17. It's a very sexual, very carnal, and all pro-male. It's a male-orientated religion. It's the sort of, uh, uh, one of my colleagues, my team leader uh, back in London, Jay Smith, always says, you can get the Muslim paradise you can get in Las Vegas, or the Muslim paradise you can get in Soho in London. You just go to the red light districts of every city in the world, and you can get the Muslim paradise. It really is just that. Um, the Hurs or the Huris or the Azwaj Mutaharatun, uh, they are these maidens that are given um, to the men. Uh, these women are described, I won't describe them now, but they're just, again, it's quite pornographic and it's, um, it's, it's just a fantasy. It's just a fantasy um, uh, that was written down and they've made it as if it's a heaven. It is an eternity of sexual orgies. Excuse how graphic I'm being. I'm trying to show how desperately sad, how immoral, how amoral this is and how we need to show our Muslim friends so they can be shocked by what, they, what the end goal is for Islam. This is what's really sad. On the last day, they're only going to catch a glimpse of their Lord. So Allah, they'll catch a glimpse of Allah in the distance. Uh, they will, uh, some uh, uh, sayings say that they will see his shin. In the Quran, it talks about they're going to see his shin. I always ask my Muslim friends quite what that will be, what Allah's shin would look like. But um, they will catch a glimpse. And whenever I ask my Muslim friends or the Muslim missionaries in London, I say, what do you see with God? What's the end goal of your religion? And they say, uh, and I say, will you be with God? Will you see God? Yes, they say. I say, really? You're going to live with God? God's going to live with you? Oh, no, 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 no. God won't live with us. I say, but we're going to see him, they say, on the last day. I say, oh, just one day, just a glimpse on the last day, just a shin. You're just going to catch a glimpse of him. And then I help them see, you know, that's your end goal. You're going to catch a glimpse. And then when you go into the paradise, you men are going to go off with your women, these women that you have in paradise. I'm not even going to describe what it is you're going to do and what you're going to have and all the rest of it. The women, there's nothing for the women. I've had many Muslim missionaries say, well, better you'll get two husbands. Like that's the end goal of my whole, the whole reason why I live my life, my religious life, that I'm going to get two husbands. And I say to them, that's all you're going to get. That's all the women are going to get, two husbands. And then you have whatever woman you want. That's all you're going to get. And a woman watches her husbands go off with these women. That's all we're going to get. God's not there. You're only going to catch a glimpse on the last day. But God is not there. And that's the big difference. And when we talk with our Muslim friends, when you introduce them to these disturbing ideas in the Quran, you must, must, must replace it with with the amazing stories that we have in the Bible where one day man and woman will stand before God. Man and woman will live with God. Revelation 21, compare Revelation 21 to Surah 56 and Surah 55 and so on. And do a comparison. God will one day live with us. He will dwell with us. It says he, God himself, is going to wipe the tears from our eyes. It's going to be, there's going to be no more death, no more crying, no more pain. He's going to take the old order of things away. In Islam, you get not just the old order, you get the worst of the old order. In Christianity, the old order is done away with. He's going to make everything new again. But this is the end goal. As a Christian, I'm going to live with God and dwell with him as a woman alongside my Christian brothers. My Christian brothers. But as a woman in Islam, you have nothing. 
You go into a paradise, you, 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 you watch your husband go off with women, and you never get to God. So do that comparison. One, according to their own theology, they never get to God. This one, the Holy Bible, according to this theology, the whole point of it is to get us back to God. Amen.